At Freedom HealthWorks, we're focused on putting medical professionals back in control of their practices. Utilizing a structured, tailored approach to business, startup, and operations, it could make sense for you to work with our professional team to avoid expensive pitfalls and, more importantly, expedite your journey to success. As we all know, time is money. If you're involved in the practice of medicine and desire to practice free of headaches and constraints, reach out for a no-obligation consultative conversation. Call us today at 317-804-1203 or visit freedomhealthworks.com. Welcome to Healthcare Americana, coming to you from the Freedom Doc Studios. I am your host, Christopher Habig, CEO and co-founder of Freedom HealthWorks. This is a podcast for the 99% of people who get care in America. We talk to innovative clinicians, policymakers, patients, caregivers, executives, and advocates who are fed up with the status quo and have a desire to change it. We take you behind the scenes with people across America that are putting patients first and restoring trust in American health care. Anybody who's listened to this show for even a little bit of time understands how important mental health is in everyday health care. While we focus more on the direct primary care side from the Freedom Health Work standpoint, I've been a longtime believer that primary care physicians are trained and can do so much more to help everyday Americans out with different types of emotional, mental stresses, and even beyond that, where we don't necessarily need to escalate things into really expert specialty care. So primary care doctors, my thesis is we can do so much more, primary care doctors can do so much more to help out patients. To help us through a conversation about mental health and what that means to Americans, please welcome Dr. Ken Duckworth, the Chief Medical Officer of the National Alliance on Mental Illness, or short, NAMI. Dr. Duckworth, thanks for joining us here on Healthcare Americana. Thanks for having me, Chris. I appreciate it. My first question right out of the gates, you know, how do you define mental health? Because to me, that is such a wide ranging topic where I can be a teenager and I'm anxious about a test versus I can be somebody who is a danger to themselves because of XYZ type of disease. And it lays on that big spectrum. So there really isn't a kind of a one size fits all approach to anything. Yeah, we're a field that doesn't have measurements. So there's no real blood pressure. Equivalent. We all have mental health, and about one in five people live with a mental health condition or mental illness. And, uh, you know, functions of emotion, behavior, thought, feeling uh, that can range from depression to anxiety to bipolar disorder to psychosis, typically coupled with difficulties in functioning, is how you get to the one in five. You know, so everybody has mental health. The ability to love and work and live and experience things, that's mental health, mental health conditions. And what we saw in COVID is that anxiety and depression went up quite substantially and hasn't really come down much since then. So we went from about one in five in total to closer to two in five with anxiety and depression being the major ones that had uh, seen an increase. That's according to the Center for Disease Control. That's not just me pontificating. You know, they've been interviewing people and taking online surveys. And so this is what they have found. So, yeah, so you're operating for wide spectrum. I like how you defined it as, you know, this interferes with your ability to function in everyday life. One in five people, I mean, when you say that to people, when you're talking to them, are they shocked that it's that prevalent? 
What I find is that most people have experienced something or love somebody who does. And so, the yeah, my brother has a serious depression. Uh, you know, my cousin is dealing with opiate addiction. Yeah, my, my dad had schizophrenia and it impacted my childhood. So, and it may be skewed because I am a psychiatrist and I work for NAMI, right? It may be skewed, but people routinely say to me, one in five, are you sure that's not too low? Because, you know, in my extended family, it's higher than one in five. So, again, I think it's just one way to define it. Remember that we don't have blood pressure numbers, but, you know, in blood pressure, it went from 130 over 90 to 120 over 80. So even if you have objective measurements, you can move the needle on what you define as something that's treatable. You know, the American Cardiology Association, I think, moved that needle. And so they had the advantage of having more measurement than we do in mental health. But, you know, you can still take the measurement and define what is a pathology. We hear a lot of headlines about mental health is in crisis. We have a mental health crisis right now. How do you establish a crisis to something that you can't measure? Yeah, well, I think you could say by the demand people are experiencing in mental health care, uh, you know, most therapists are completely overrun. If you try to contact a therapist, you're unlikely to get a call back. Most psychiatrists can't see you. Most mental health centers have wait lists of months. And so what it says to me is the explosion in demand for mental health service is another way to interpret what's happening. I think during COVID, what happened is mental health went from a you thing to a we thing. And people experienced it in their own lives, their own children, their own family members as they were dealing with grief and uncertainty. Many more people uh, sought mental health care during the pandemic. And uh, I think the silver lining of the pandemic is we're talking about mental health in ways we never did before. I'm going to focus on the pandemic right now. In you know, we're here in, in, in recording this in, in 2023. It's still very fresh in people's minds, still people dealing with fallout from it. Is it too early to see some of the results in like pediatric mental health where we shut down schools, we isolated kids? did a lot of different things from a kind of a social experiment standpoint. Are we seeing any results or fallout or anything kind of lessons learned at this point in time? Well, it's not, it's, you know, you can't control one variable, right? Uh, emergency rooms were filled with kids who were waiting for care before the pandemic. So the, the teen mental health vulnerability has been made worse by the pandemic but it didn't come out of the blue, uh, you know, and however you interpret the complex melange of uh, social media, climate change, bullying, school shootings, pick your favorite topic. Mental health in teenagers was struggling before the pandemic. So there were problems in the facade of America's, you know, young people's mental health. And the pandemic just made it all so much more so. I think a lot of times uh, the pediatric mental health gets kind of sidelined when we're dealing with, especially with adults. I mean, we bring up homelessness in the same conversation. A lot of homeless men and women and Americans, you know, struggle with mental health issues. I want to talk about the work that NAMI is doing for adults and for children. Give us your side of the story on the National Alliance on Mental Illness. Where are you guys active? What are you trying to do? Where's the future? Well, we're the largest grassroots mental health organization in the country, ergo the world. There's no equivalent to NAMI in England. 
And we have support groups and education groups all across America, and they're all free. So if you're a primary care doctor and you see somebody who has a mental health condition, they might want to have, you know, a support group and not feel alone. I just wrote Nami's not first book, You Are Not Alone, because quite intentionally, a lot of people don't want to have a mental health condition, feel a lot of shame and isolation. So if you go to NAMI.org and you type in Chattanooga, Tennessee, or Birmingham, Alabama, or Boston, Massachusetts, you can find out where there's groups, where there's people like you. So there's 650 affiliates all across America. And this is a great organization of people who've lived the experience that you have. So I felt like it was such an important time in the pandemic because mental health became such a crisis. I decided to write NAMI's first book. And I interviewed real people, and real people use their names, which is kind of radical in medical writing. I'm a psychiatrist. Usually it's the uh, patient is confidential and all identity is any resemblance to any real people is purely coincidental. And uh, this book flips that all on its head. There's real people. They have real names. They're from real states. You can contact them if you want. They want to demonstrate that what they've been through, they could help you. That's very NAMI. Because what you'll find if you go to the NAMI group in Memphis or Colorado Springs, you'll find people like you dealing with mental health conditions. So it's both people with mental health conditions and families, family members. NAMI also does a lot of advocacy. So you may have heard of 988, which is the uh, you know National Suicide Crisis Lifeline. If you want a mental health response, you call 988, and that increases your chances of getting a mental health instead of a police response. So NAMI led the advocacy movement for that. It took us years to pull that off. The book is called You're Not Alone. It's a USA Today bestseller. You mentioned offline uh, when we were just chatting that the biggest growth in customers are people buying the book. You know, it's, it's a popping up in primary care offices around the country. Well, primary care doctors are heroes and the, one of the backbones of the American mental health care system. They don't get much love or appreciation for it. They prescribe most of the antidepressants. They're really, uh, you know, in a position where they're often trusted by people. People come to them with their vulnerabilities. I think most primary care docs would say a substantial subset of their workload is ultimately mental health. So this is one area that I have seen some interest in this because primary care doctors don't have enough time to take long visits with people. And this book... Um, You know, you can talk to people who've lived with bipolar disorder, have been hospitalized, and have gotten through it. You can talk to people who have begun to hear voices, and how did they learn to struggle and accept that? Uh, People who have panic attacks, and how did they learn to live with that? People who were misdiagnosed on the mental health side. People who lost family members to suicide. And, you know, what I did is I interviewed 130 real people, and I listened to their stories. And it was really important to me to, uh, you know, go forth And uh, participate in this idea that your story has meaning. And so I think primary care doctors, it's a resource. I wrote it as kind of the practical guide. An alternative title to You Are Not Alone is The People's Guide to Mental Health. You know, because it really is just regular people from 38 states who say what it's like, what it's like in their culture, what it's like in their own experience, why it was hard for them to find help. So I found primary care doctors like this book. And uh, I'd be happy to give a talk. You know, if a group of primary care docs wants to meet people in the book, I'm doing these virtual book clubs uh, all across America. It's been really fun. 
focusing on primary care, and you mentioned something that is a topic near and dear to my heart is time spent with patients, especially the primary care level. Going to the direct primary care model, people are probably listening and shaking their head, be like, oh, I actually have an hour with patients and I get back to them right away. So they can kind of manage, it's not necessarily a hotline or crisis, but they're able to have access for people. I, when I talk to state level groups and, you know, govern, on the government side of it, trying to find mental health, you know, solutions, they say the exact same stuff, right? There's not enough therapists, there's not enough psychiatrists, there's not enough psychologists to handle the workload. In my opinion, everybody on up from you know the grassroots, like the hospital systems themselves, who restrict you know visit times to primary care and restrict access, all the way up to government officials, completely neglect, even abandon primary care as a resource for so many different people that they see for everyday needs. How do we get to a solution where people are able to find access when they need it for a variety of different conditions that, like you said, I love that. It's not measurable. There's no numbers we can put out here to say, oh, yeah, yeah, now you're diagnosed with depression. Yeah, well, you can take a PHQ-9, right, and that'll give you a number. That's the closest we have. You know, out of 27, my score is 12. You know, that's concerning, right? Primary care doctors do a lot of great work, and uh, there is a collaborative care model that you know out of the AIM Center, the University of Washington. This is where psychiatrists consult to primary care docs and help primary care doctors take care of their whole population. One of the challenges with that is we haven't really seen people adopt that. And I think partly it's because psychiatrists aren't trained to think in a public health way. They're trained to think one-on-one. And if you're one of the one-on-one, you're probably going to get great care, but it can be hard to find them. So yeah, we need to help our primary care docs because they're one of the real absolute backbones of American mental health care even though they may not have signed up for that. <laughs> well, generalists, you know, I, I think uh, this idea of having range, professional range, where you can handle a lot of different subjects, I, I think it's starting to come back into vogue after what we've seen. People get very super specialized and subspecialized, and then they can't think about something else outside of the box over here. So I, I guess my question to you is, do you see primary care physicians in the United States as an untapped resource to help handle mental health issues for people? Well, you know, we're tapping the heck out of them. I mean, they're they're really busy. It's really hard. I'm very sympathetic to primary care. If everybody had access to collaborative care, where you had a psychiatrist consulting to you, their work would be easier. So, you know, people go to primary care for their mental health, but they also expect the primary care doctor to know which therapist is taking patients. Right. The primary care doctor can't know that. Well, that's an easy no. answer, Ken. That's, that's none of them, right? I, I think the answer nine times out of ten is nobody. Well, you know, who takes your insurance, who has an opening? Some of them have an in-house clinician who does assessments and make referrals. Uh, but the problem we have for that is that's typically not paid for by the healthcare system. So having a social worker who could say, you know, I think this guy's having a manic episode. Could we help him get care? And then the primary care doctor can go work on the next thing while the social worker attends to the person, gets them into care or hospitalized or whatever they need. That isn't really part of the funding stream of American medical care. But mental health problems are a big part of the primary care workload. What role does health insurance play in mental health professionals in their practices? Well, I think the fact that half of psychiatrists don't take any insurance of any kind, that's well-established. That was a JAMA 
paper from 2014 that's not gotten better tells you all you need to know is that insurance is underpaying mental health practitioners and mental health practitioners simply say, I'll only take cash, but you have to pay me privately. Now, I don't really have a problem with it on one level. People graduate from medical school with a quarter of a million dollars of debt and people are offering to pay them, you know, a reasonable wage, right, privately. And they are helping sick people. I want to emphasize this. It's not like they're not doing mental health care. They're doing mental health care. But until the insurance companies really step up to make it so that if you have insurance, you can see a mental health practitioner, we still have a kind of two-tier system in America. So I think payment is an underlying cause of a lot of the difficulties that we have. Mm-hmm. So it's an access problem because – Yeah, there is you know, definitely mind- an access problem. You know, half the counties in America don't have a psychiatrist. You know, just to give you some ballpark here, I mean, we're talking about – I think it's close. That might be 47 percent, but it's many counties. And then if you want a child psychiatrist, it's many counties more don't have one. So, you know, we're looking at some important uh, resource shortages – this is one of the things that NAMI's interested in doing is bringing more peers into the game, people with lived experience. So how does a person who's lived with serious depression, how does a person who lived with trauma and addiction, how do they support you? They're not trained professionals. They don't do diagnosis. They won't prescribe medicines. All those things could be very harmful because you don't want a professional you know, role done by a person who's lived with experience. But lived experience is really powerful, and we've underutilized so that in the healthcare system. So if health plans would pay for more people with lived experience, it's one of the points in my book is I wanted people to see that lived experience is a kind of expertise. That if you've lived with something in your family for 20 years, you might have learned something. And for whatever reason, you know, that's why the book is so radical. Nobody really asked that question. Why don't we find out what people have done? And you learn that service dogs have a different role than dogs who help to regulate people with bipolar disorder, regulate your schedule, your sleep cycle, you know, all those things. People told me different things that they had learned along the way, what made a difference for them. And I think that's why it's a fun book for a primary care doc, because it is a resource. And it's also an entry into the world of NAMI support. Because you can kind of get a feel. A lot of these people took the classes or teach the classes at NAMI. I'm curious about the results that you're seeing. Because in my mind, correct me if I'm wrong, I'm thinking almost like an Alcoholics Anonymous where it's your peers coming together, supporting each other, getting people through it, overcoming challenges. Am I thinking about that? What concept you just described? Am I thinking about that in the general terms? I think there's a lot of similarities. Yeah, I think there's a lot of similarities. I mean, AA is, you know, an organization of attraction, right? They don't really advertise. They don't have a structure. You know, NAMI groups have more of a structure. And people are encouraged to tell their stories in schools, in businesses, in hospitals, to police officers, what it was like, you know, when the mental health uh, crisis call came in and how they were treated. But you don't have to tell your story. And, you know, the book, it's only volunteers who wanted to shell their story. I think some people would prefer to stay anonymous. And I think that's fine, too. I don't encourage people to get on Channel 5 and tell their mental health story (laughs) unless you're really ready. So it's a very individual thing. So I think there's some of the similarities with AA. It's the idea that you're not alone. We're talking with Dr. Ken Duckworth, Chief 
medical officer of NAMI, the National Alliance on Mental Illness, and author of You Are Not Alone, a USA Today bestseller. I, I guess, Dr. Doctor, you know, a lot of what my questions come from is you mentioned earlier where mental health, you know, just a few years ago was a me problem, not a we problem. Are more people coming out and saying, I'm more comfortable talking about my struggles or are more people being affected to this than ever before? I think both. So, you know, I think, you know, famous athletes, you know, coming out and talking about mental health, that impacts some people. Some people say, oh, wow, that person's dealing with something I'm dealing with. Okay, maybe it's easier for me. But I think also in the pandemic, and this is particularly true of young people, the rates of mental health conditions are higher and they're more willing to talk about it. So both things are happening at the same time. So it's difficult to control for any of these variables, but certainly more openness has been a very welcome aspect. You're not saying, oh, it's it's definitely social media's fault uh, that's affecting these kids over here. It's these, it's these darn smartphones in every six-year-old's pocket. I don't think we know. I don't think that's that's been well stu- – it's hard to study that. It's really hard to study the effects of social media on kids. Um, you know, I don't want to make too many determinants about that. How much are school shooting drills impacting kids' mental health? How much is climate change impacting kids' mental health? How much is bullying online? You know, there's a lot of variables. I will say, Chris, I'm older than you. It was easier to grow up when I was young. And I think the fact that the rates of anxiety and depression and vulnerabilities related to that are higher is reflected in the stresses people are under now. Yeah, and, and we hear that a lot, right? We're like, wow, you know, back in the, the simpler days, simpler times. And I'm looking at that, so I'm saying, I wonder if that is just because the speed of life has accelerated. The world is smaller. We have the entire collective human knowledge within our fingertips within a couple of seconds. And we get upset if it takes five seconds rather than two seconds. So attention spans are lower. I mean, education is, I think to my point, like it's at this inflection point where it's been overcome by life, by technology, by the world that we're living in it needs to catch up. And same thing with, you know, human beings. Like, I, I guess I'm coming to this question that the last 20 years or so has really accelerated life and compressed this world. Are human beings equipped to understand that, to cope with that, to accept it and move forward? Well, we've had no adaptive changes, right? We're the same creatures we were 5,000 years ago, more or less, right? So, you know, what's changed is the technology. What's changed is the speed of inputs, which changes these devices, which are a big part of everyone's lives now. And I think this, we're running an uncontrolled experiment, (laughs) right? I I felt like a guinea pig. We we have not. I always feel like a guinea pig. Yeah, exactly. We've not said people of Michigan cannot use this device and let's see how their mental health is. That would have been helpful if we took Michigan, Texas, and Oregon and said, you guys can't have these devices. We'll see how the kids do. We also won't do school shooting drills. You know, we also won't talk about climate change. Like we won't do any of the things that are adding to, you know, uh, teen anxiety, in those three states. But the problem is we don't do it that way, you know. And, uh, you know, we we conducted a technological adventure without understanding, I think, what it means to people. Because I think now the chances for humiliation are higher. You get turned down by someone when I was in high school. It's a bad day for you. Now it could be a bad day that's broadcast, right? You get broken up with by someone. I just think the opportunities for humiliation which is a correlate of both violence and self-harm. It's not the cause, but it's a correlate. 
And if you look at some of the school shooters, they were dissed, insulted, you know, some social media aspect uh, insulted them or humiliated them. That's interesting. That's interesting. Yeah. Humiliation is really bad for people. Yeah. And, uh, you know, if you look at America, world history, there's a lot of humiliation generating war and all kinds of problems. Yes. That, that's a it's a great point. I mean, just as recently as heck, major players in Cold Wars, World Wars, you name it all the way back to. Yeah. Start of human existence. Uh, gosh, I, I dare I dare I go back to the days of Cain and Abel. Even it's fascinating from the humiliation standpoint because bullying obviously um, has a new anonymous face with with online presence here. I, I'm curious, Doctor Duckworth. You know, as we as we come to the close of our episode here, how can people get involved with NAMI? And then, kind of follow up question: Where does NAMI go from this? What do the next five ten years look like for your organization? Yeah, so NAMI is leading the conversation on mental health. Like if you look at our media uptick, and I talk to reporters all day, you know, every day. NAMI's trying to reach out to more young people. We're trying to become younger and more diverse. Again, this was started mostly by mothers back in the day, people with mental health conditions who felt that the system wasn't attending to them well enough. And they never blamed their primary care doctors. They love their primary care doctors, but they felt the primary care doctors didn't have enough tools. And so NAMI is going to continue to grow. Uh, we just got a $30 million grant from Mackenzie Scott to continue to grow our footprint. And what you're going to see is more programs, more support groups. These are all free. So again, for primary care doctors who feel overwhelmed with the person in their room, if they don't need hospitalization, refer them to NAMI. And hopefully if they get to a hospital, if they need it, somebody at the hospital will say you could also use a support group. It's just a supplement to support people. And it's something that many people don't think of. Uh, when I wrote this book, I had so many people tell me, God, if only I knew about NAMI five years ago, it would have saved my marriage or my relationship with my daughter would be a lot better. And uh, if you look at the comments on Amazon, several people wrote that. God, I could have used this book 10 years ago. And I just think the idea of NAMI is it's a grassroots group of people with mental health conditions and their families who are interested in providing support, education, and advocacy uh, so the 988 number is specifically designed to reduce bad outcomes with police officers. And again, we don't blame police officers. They're asked to do too much, just like primary care doctors, right? We've got to find ways to support our colleagues in law enforcement, in primary care. And, you know, hopefully the use of peers and peers as advocates can make a difference. Dr. Ken Duckworth, Chief Medical Officer at the National Alliance on Mental Illness. Dr. Duckworth, sir, thank you for joining us here on Healthcare Americana. Thank you for your time. Thank you for all your good work, and thanks for having me. That's going to do it for this episode of Healthcare Americana. If you haven't yet, be sure to subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast platform. Check us out online at healthcareamericana.com to catch previous episodes. Subscribe to our mailing list and visit our online store. Once again, I am your host, Christopher Habig. Thanks for listening. Check out healthcareamericana.com to hear all of our episodes. Visit the shop and learn more about the podcast. Healthcare Americana is produced and managed by Taylor Scott and iPodcast Pro. Healthcare Americana is brought to you by Freedom HealthWorks and Freedom Doc. If you've been struggling to get the care you need and the access you want, it's time to join your local Freedom Doc. Visit freedomdoc.care to find the practice location nearest you. 
Whether you're a patient, employer, or physician, the Free Market Medical Association can facilitate and assist you in your free market healthcare journey. The foundation of our association is built upon three pillars, price, value, and equality, with complete transparency in everything we do. Our goal is simple, match willing buyers with willing sellers of valuable healthcare services. Join us and help accelerate the growth of the free market healthcare revolution. For more information on the Free Market Medical Association, visit fmma.org. Hi again, everyone. This is Chris. At Healthcare Americana, we're always on the lookout for great stories to tell in the healthcare industry. And we'd like to hear yours. Check out healthcareamericana.com and send us your ideas for episodes or if you'd like to be a guest. Thanks again for listening. Hope you enjoy it.